Craig Koshik grew up among farm dogs and traveled the world observing and writing about hunting dogs. After diving into the cultures, languages, and practices that produced both types, he found out they're not all that different. Craig will walk us through the common beginnings and shared instincts of hunting breeds and our canine farmhands. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Welcome to Farm Dog and welcome to Craig Koshik. My name is Aaron Steele, the host of the Farm Dog Podcast, and I am super thrilled to introduce Craig Koshik as our guest today. Craig is uh, the owner of Dog Willing Publications. He's an author of Pointing Dogs Volume 1, which covers the continental breeds of uh, pointing bird dogs. Um, also, Craig has already mentioned to me that Volume 2 is coming out soon, so that's really exciting, where we'll cover the um, Irish and British breeds of uh, pointing dogs. Uh, Craig is the co-host of the Hunting Dog Confidential podcast that's kind of hosted in the Project Upland ecosystem, projectupland.com, and he's also the editor-in-chief of a magazine, Hunting Dog Confidential, and so Craig has a lot going on, and you'll notice that I mentioned all mostly hunting stuff. And so, Craig, uh, that's your specialty. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and and how you came to be in the bird dog and hunting dog world? Well, actually, and I think we're going to find this as a common topic today. Um, my sort of background is, is is hunting and farming. Although I was born and raised in a city, uh, both sides of my family, my mother and father, were both uh, born and raised on farms. They were the you know son and daughter of uh, of immigrants. Uh, my father's family came from Ukraine. My mother's family came from Iceland. And so I'm a pretty huh. sort of normal, quote unquote, normal Manitoba mix uh, of, of, of cultures. But they were both raised uh, on farms. Um, my The Icelandic side were, you know, farmers and fishermen and the Ukrainian side were just basically farmers and, and ranchers. And so I grew up in a sort of a farming tradition, farming family. But uh, I always wanted a dog I, and, and because we hunted. I mean, here, you know, when the immigrants first came here, when the settlers first came, uh, we're talking, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, they farmed, but they also had to hunt. Um, they, they, my mother to this day will no longer eat any game meat because that's all she ate for the first, you know, quarter of her, her life. <laughs> uh, to her, that was, you know, poor people food. And she's super happy when she gets a nice plastic wrapped steak from Safeway, you know, instead of a, instead of a, a, a deer that I shoot or something and, and fish the same thing. She sort of OD'd on it as a, as a poor farm child or a poor, you know, child of a, of a fisherman who also farmed. And so, um, I always wanted a dog, and they were always around. We always had dogs. There was always dogs around the farmyards. Again, I spent my summers there. I, I lived in the city, but spent most of my sort of holiday time or any time I could out at the farm, and there was always dogs around. And uh, um, But they were farm dogs. Um, sometimes they were, you know, used to help herd some of the cows, uh, but most of their job was to bark when somebody came up the driveway <laughs> or towards the house and to bark if a bear come around or, or coyotes. They were just there as a sort of early warning system. In fact, I had one old uncle that always had a dog and the dog's name was Dog. And and if it got old and died or run over or ran off, he got a new one and he just christened it Dog. So you always knew the name of my uncle's dogs. They were all Dog. Um, but yeah, I, so, so my background was, you know, sort of always being around them and always hunting from a very early age. Um, but never being in the position to get an actual hunting dog. I always wanted one, and I knew the minute I got a fence and the minute I got a, a house, I would get a bird dog. And uh, so after moving around, my wife and I moved. We lived in Quebec for a while in the eastern part of Canada and Europe a little bit, and then came back. We finally settled down in Manitoba and got a house with a fence in the backyard, and I don't think the ink was dry on the mortgage papers before I started shopping around for a dog. Uh, <laughs> I got a bird dog. Uh, he ended up being a pretty good one, and that really sent me down a rabbit hole. I just was fascinated by him, by what he was, what he represented, and I thought, I need to learn as much as possible. I want to learn all about these dogs, so 
this is pre-internet days, I decided I would go to the local library and pick up a book so I would learn about them. And lo and behold, there wasn't a book. There were some books that, you know, looked at some breeds and other books that looked at other... There was no one big encyclopedia or big book that covered all the bird dog breeds. And so being a bit of a stubborn SOB, I figured, well, if there isn't one, I'll just write one. And so <laughs> that sent me on a, you know, a 10-year journey, really. Uh, I decided that I'm going to write a book on these pointing dogs, but I'm not going to write it from stuff that I, you know, hear over the, you know, over the phone or by letters or email or even when the internet started. I figured I need to go to those countries where those dogs that were created and bred. So people have probably heard of a German short-haired pointer. Well, I'm not going to study them just here. I'm going to Germany. People have heard of, you know, English setters. Well, I'm not just going to write about them, but from my, you know, armchair here in Manitoba, I'm going to England. So my wife and I, over a 10-year period, ended up traveling to Europe, you know, multiple times and going to every single country that had produced these pointing dogs and photographing them and writing about them. And that's the first book. And the second one will be out uh, next spring. That's fascinating. And I think that that's one of the things that um, I love about the your podcast, Hunting Dog Confidential, is just that it's it's not just about dogs. Like it's a deep dive into history and culture and even economics and politics and language. And um, as, as a dog nerd, I just suck that stuff up. And um, I, I really enjoy that. And I think one of the things I've noticed is just that if you trace these dog breeds back to their origins, um, there are common breeds and, and foundational breeds uh, with what we would consider farm dogs today. And so l let me just, for our purposes, define farm dog. Okay, we use it pretty loosely on the podcast, but basically any dog that helps people live close to the land and make a living from farming and agriculture. So that might mean um, a herding dog. It might mean a, a livestock guardian dog. It might mean just something to deal with pests. It might mean protecting people uh, who live in remote rural areas. So um, that's... That's a super broad definition, but I wonder if you just, am I crazy? Uh, do you also see the overlap in hunting dogs and uh, farm dogs, agricultural dogs? Oh, 100%. And I mean, we could attack that sort of idea from so many different angles. I mean, genetically, let's face it, they're all basically wolves slash coyotes, you know. <laughs> I mean, you take every, you know, you take a dozen farm dogs and a dozen of the highest bred you know, pointers and setters, put them on an island and come back 500 years from now or 1,000 years from now, and you've got coyotes running around. None of them will be what they were. They would all revert back to some sort of prototypical type. So they all genetically come from the, the same source. And the more we dig down and, and into the DNA, the more we, we, we realize this. I mean, we're getting closer and closer to sort of identifying more or less the time period in which dogs were domesticated. And I like to say they domesticated themselves uh, with a little helping hand from us, but you know the old there, you know that whole idea of some sort of caveman picking up a wolf puppy and raising it, and then eventually creating a dog is not particularly accurate. They, they as soon as humans uh, started settling down and and certain conditions were met, basically they they domesticated themselves. But we can go way back, you know, and and even sort of regionally, we can figure out more or less where they came from, where they split off, how they were sort of divided, and and yeah, for sure, I mean. You know, and there there comes a point at which you you, you realize that uh, you know those roots or those branches of the tree all sort of feed right back to the same trunk, uh, and and hunting dogs and and, um, and gun dogs for sure genetically are very close. And then we can look culturally. You know, we can look historically. You know, like a lot of the gun dog breeds were bred in rural areas, where basically, or at a time when ninety percent of the population was rural before there were even big cities and we wouldn't even think about, you know, uh, urban things. I mean, you know, so um, culturally is, and, and even sort of performance wise, you know, you look at a border collie and you look at some European lines of English and uh, of English setters and it's like, my goodness, they, they, they look, you know, a border collie herding and laying down and then sort of scuttling its belly across to move closer to the sheep and doing all that sort of stuff. I mean, I can show you videos, you can go on YouTube and find videos of, of, of English setters looking pretty much like that. And you're like, yeah, of course they do that. And you can even go to Ethiopian wolves and find them doing the same thing. So yes, there is a really 
interesting nexus of, of, of you know, and, and, you know, the Venn diagram of these two types of dogs is there's a lot of overlap in it for sure. Yeah, that's a great point about the uh, the English setter because, you know, we think of English setters, those who like to hunt birds over dogs. You know, here in America, we think of English setters as um, staunch, tall standing dogs uh, on a solid point with their tails in the air. But the, the term setter comes from setting birds, right? Like laying down. Um, and when I when I picture that, even though I've never seen it in person, I think of it's so similar to the action of a border collie, um, you know, circling around sheep and dropping to its belly and and continuing to stare intently at at the prey, essentially. I mean, is is that are are those the same instincts just applied differently? Yeah. And let me let me do this in two parts. First of all, we'll go back just a little bit. The What you mentioned with the setters and pointers pointing upright, um, that is true, and it's an American thing, especially with the vertical, what we call a 12 o'clock tail. It's the preference here in North America. You know, people here tend to tend to want to see a pointing dog point high on both ends, high and tight on both ends, you know, high head <laughs> and high tail. Uh, in England, it's a little less. Um, they're sort of level head, level tail. And then when you go to places like Italy, which, by the way, is the number one producer of, people don't know this, of English setters in the world. In America, there might be 2,000, 3,000 English setters whelped per year. In England, uh, you know, sort of ironically, they might do two or 300 a year. It's, it's, mm. the, the English setter in England is on sort of the endangered species list. In Italy, on the other hand, they will, they will produce between 15 and 20,000 English setter puppies per year. Wow. Uh, they are hardcore and, and all in on the English setter there. And, and they... Are the opposite. They, their their uh, tendency or their sort of taste is towards a very low dog that that runs very low to the ground, and when it points, it sets. And it, you know, if you go back to the old literature, 500 years ago, when English setters were first described in England, they were they were said that the author said that they they crawled over the ground like a worm, and that's what these dogs do. And so all you need to do is go to YouTube. Uh, English Setter Italy or Italian English Setter and press play and you'll see a bunch of videos of these things um, doing what's called a uh, guidata. It's a type of movement that they do and it's it's incredible. And every time I see a border collie, I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are very similar things. Now, you, you also mentioned the border collie circling. Well, if we go back to the very first written references or descriptions of how to hunt with a pointing dog. Okay, we're now into the 14th century, 15th century Spain, for example. Those are some of the greatest manuscripts we have from the very old days. And there's a couple of them that describe how they hunt with pointing dogs. Now, today, we think of a pointing dog as running out there. It finds with its nose a bird at, or whatever it's going to point. It could be a rabbit or a hare. And it slams on point and stands there. All right. Uh, it's pointing, it's indicating where it is. You run up or you walk up, bird flushes, you shoot, the dog will fetch it more or less. Um, that's pointing. But in the early days, they, they had, so one of the earliest manuscripts describes two types. It says there are two types of dogs we use to point, quote unquote, birds. There are pointing dogs, pero de punta is what he calls it. He says uh, uh, in Spanish, he uses the word a dog that points. And then he uh, says um, there are also circling dogs. The, the, the pointing dog points uh, and the circling dog circles. He says, now, remember, at this point in time, they have no guns. There are no firearms. They're shooting crossbows. So they're shooting birds on the ground. So in order to shoot a bird on the ground with a crossbow, you need to see it. So he says in his book, the, the pointing dogs are really good for certain things, but the circling dogs are, are good for other things because when they circle, you know exactly where the birds are and you can see them and then shoot them. He says, but the best dog of all is one that'll do both, depending on the conditions. So even that idea, now that's gone. Nobody uses their pointing dog anymore to circle. Um, but, I, I, you know, in certain conditions with certain game, I think it would be really, really effective. Uh, and in fact, I do know people who use border collies and other farm dogs to hunt with. And they can be sometimes just as effective. So again, even behavior-wise, now I'm going to just, I know this is long-winded, but let me go back just a little bit further. When you say that do they have the same traits and the same behaviors, let's go right back to a wolf or a coyote. Wolves and coyotes, but we'll talk wolves because they're more even closer related. Wolves can run just like a dog can run. They can gallop, they can walk, they can swim, they can fetch. They All of the behaviors we see in all of our dogs exist in a wolf. It's just that over time, 
we've selected for certain ones. Wolf's Point, okay? So do coyotes. So do bobcats. Any predator will point. And in fact, I can prove to our listeners that people point, all right? And if you just want to, and you can prove it to you, you can win bar bets with this one, okay? <laughs> Next time you're, you know, enjoying a cold beverage with friends and a fly lands on the table or a mosquito lands on your arm or on somebody else's arm, watch what they do. They do not swat it immediately most of the time. What do they do? Here comes that fly. It sits. Now watch them. What do they do? They raise their hand and hold it. <laughs> they might even hold their breath. And then they got it. That pause before we pounce, that pause before a predator seizes its game is, is almost ubiquitous uh, for, for you know, many types of, of predators. And so wolves point, but pointing dogs point almost forever you know we've we've just exaggerated certain um characteristics border collies herd but but a pack of wolves will herd as well they work cooperatively um a wolf will fetch he's got young ones in the den he, they kill something he picks it up and brings it back to the den so every behavior we see in our dogs is ex exists in a wolf but to a very to varying degrees wolves can gallop but they do it very rarely an English setter, I, I've seen English setter puppies that are 10 weeks old. They simply gallop. They don't know what else to They don't know why they're doing it. They have no clue. <laughs> you put an eight-week or 10-week-old setter puppy on the ground, and this thing will just bolt <laughs> because <laughs> we've done that. So with our farm dogs and our hunting dogs, we simply selected which of those behaviors we want to exaggerate. And then we select over time, and bingo, there we have it. Right. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing, you know, because in the in the farm dog world, we're often using the predatory instincts of a dog to protect or gather the other animals. You know, like we're we're bending and and warping this instinct of them to our needs. And you know, of course, that has there's a long history of humans doing that, but um, we're putting a prey animal in front of a predatory animal and telling them to. Uh, use what you got and do this for me, but don't harm the animal. And uh, and in the case of livestock guardian dogs, we're actually asking them to bond with the animal and protect them out of, you know, some sense of belonging with those livestock animals. So it's it's amazing how, I guess, how adaptable the behaviors and genetics of dogs are in general. And I know there's not much of a question dogs there for that. Most... No, but dogs are the most plastic sort of being that exists, really. I mean, when you consider the difference, uh, you know, between a Chihuahua and a Great Dane, uh, you know, between a, a Rottweiler and a Poodle, I mean, they're, they're the same breed, uh, sorry, the same species that can interbreed. And so, you know, and, and I love this. I go to the park all the time with my dogs. And there's a woman there sometimes with a Great Dane, and there's another woman with a Terrier that might be eight pounds. In that terrier's mind, it's the same size as that Great Dane, and that Great Dane is the same size. Like, they recognize each other as dogs. It's, it's crazy. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of the behaviors with farm dogs as well as with hunting dogs, we exaggerate certain behaviors we want, and we diminish others. So if you look at a border collie, you look at certain of the herding dogs, you've got this absolutely predatory behavior of them doing that part of the predation, which they would do in a group of herding and gathering. But what we've done is sort of nip that that last seizing, grabbing, and consuming part of it. Because if you think of what a wolf pack would do, well, it's going to hurt them. It's going to chase them into this and that until they're into tighter and tighter quarters. And then the final act is to leap on the damn thing, kill it, and, and devour it. Well, that is counterproductive, obviously, for, for certain types of farm dogs. Other ones will, will – will, and so we diminish that. We, we, we won't breed dogs. If you – Again, I'm no Border Collie expert, and you might get emails about this, but I can imagine somebody who's got a brilliant Border Collie that has a fault. I would assume it's a fault in a Border Collie to go and grab whatever it's supposed to herd and eat it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that dog probably wouldn't be bred. Uh, however, where do we stop? Do we stop it? It should never touch the animals because we could we could breed for that, that it's just, you know, untrained for that. Should it touch them and maybe nip them maybe it's going to heal a little bit maybe it's going to bite the heels maybe it's going to be a little bit more aggressive and then how do we make it differentiate between okay these are the ones over here that we don't touch ever we don't harm but then this other enemy coming well we're going to go and kill it 
you know, what do you call the, the um, Pyrenees mountain dogs, uh, you know, guarding flocks of sheep against bulls and coyotes. So it, it really is interesting. But what it is, is human beings saying, look, this is what I want out of this whole package. It's like you've got all these options and they're all there in the wolf. Well, which ones do you want an extra helping of and which ones do you want to kind of eliminate? Right. And it is it's really cool, I think, also that in even in the diversity of agricultural types and farm types and ranch types here in the United States or in North America and how we produce cattle, how we produce sheep and goats and, and pigs and chickens and ducks, even in that relatively small world, there's a great amount of diversity. And thank goodness there is a diversity among the dog breeds and even particular lines within the dog breeds. So we can get that. Uh, you know, I've talked to a couple of cowboys recently and if their dog won't nip at heels, if their dog won't bite on command, that dog will wash out of their program. But in a different context than somebody else's ranch, somebody else's small farm where they're, you know, using the border collie or Australian shepherd or what have you to gather chickens and ducks at the end of the day, you know, that's completely unnecessary and doesn't fit their needs. I, I just think that's one of the coolest things. And one of the reasons I started this podcast is because the variety of, of ways we have a, taken adaptations of dogs and kind of bent them to our needs is just absolutely fascinating. And that extends into the hunting dog world a great deal too. Um, I, I owned and trained a Deutsch Dratar and, you know, some folks in the United States are now breeding um, Drothars and German wire-haired pointers to have um, to find other types of animals besides birds less appealing. But of course, in Germany, that's that's one of their greatest characteristics is that they are so versatile across a variety of different types of prey. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, as you can tell, Craig, I just love talking about dogs because there's zero question <laughs> at the end of that. But, no uh... worries, no worries. You bring up some interesting <laughs> topics. I mean, it, it really is. You know, when you talk about ranchers and hunters uh, having the dog, you know, suited to their needs, that's exactly the main driving force. And, and it's when that driving force is lost that we can get into trouble in terms of the performance aspects of these breeds, right? So you talk about a rancher who, you know, if his dogs won't heal, won't nip at the heels, he's a washout. Well, it's because he needs that. Without that, that dog is pretty well just another mouth to feed that you know, is not really carrying its its weight. Um, in Germany, the Drathar comes out of a program whereby um, not only is there a strong tradition and, um, you know, sort of a heritage behind having a hunting dog, but they actually have legal requirements. Um, you must have a hunting dog and it must be bred to a certain standard and trained to a certain standard to do sort, so, certain sorts of hunting in Germany. Here, um, again, most of our hunting dogs, and this is one of the sort of more divergent areas that we can talk about, is that here, most of the time, most hunters hunt for pleasure. Nobody here is, I shouldn't say nobody, but it's not very common that people absolutely rely on survival from their from their hunting dogs. Whereas that right. rancher who needs that dog, um, you know, and, and some of these farmers, I mean, they, 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 that dog is absolutely vital to them. Of course, all dogs are vital to all dog owners because they... They occupy a place in our heart that's irreplaceable. But I'm just talking, you know, calorie in, calorie out, bank account sort of stuff. Um, yeah, there are requirements of farm dogs that don't necessarily translate into the sporting dogs. But when you go into places like Germany and other places where not only is the tradition that strong, where sort of morally and ethically you really need to have one, but there are actual legal sanctions to hunting without a dog. Like, in other words, you have to hunt. You must have a dog. To do certain types of hunting there and it must be trained and registered in a particular way it's almost like having a you know your car needs to be registered or you need a particular caliber of gun to do this type of hunting and others are not allowed so there's there's sort of motivating and driving factors towards why we select for certain things and then other ones that are just selected because we kind of like them we kind of dig them they're kind of cool or it's just a sport right Right. Well, while on that topic of, you know, having uh, particular needs in different contexts and this farm needs that and that farm needs that, it does seem like there's a bit of a split historically between dogs that were bred 
out of sheer need for survival and helping people make a living from the land that ended up becoming hunting breeds in by modern definition but then also hunting breeds that kind of came out of like just uh people seeking leisure and sport and even status and in more of an aristocratic environment and i wonder if you could speak to maybe some breeds that came from each place oh yeah i mean you know the history and the cultural sort of uh, melting pot that produced the various breeds is the most fascinating topic and i, I say this repeatedly in my podcast in my writings a dog breed look okay so we can talk about a species the canis domesticus you know basically the domestic dog but then everything else is either a land race and a land race simply meaning a type of dog that develops in a certain region um just because of geographical isolation or because of other you know sort of factors that basically all the dogs in that neck of the woods look the same because they're all related nobody sat down with a piece of paper going okay we're going to open a stud book and take pedigrees they just happen to look that way and work that way because everybody there wanted them that way and used them and everybody bred to everybody's dogs so they were all one big sort of family or, or you know relatively related group that's called a land race then you have types now a type would be pointing dogs or hounds or herding dogs or water dogs these are you know defined by a general umbrella term and then the most modern thing that we've developed is this idea of a breed which is a closed stud book, um, something that has pedigrees, that this is a Labrador retriever, this is a golden retriever, this is a German short hair versus a German wire hair. That, that's a very modern type of a concept. And so if we go back to land races, yeah, I mean, most of these were developed simply because they were the dogs that everybody had. Nobody, you know, and, and this goes for, you know, sheep breeds and, and breeds of cows. There are land races. They just happened to be that way because everybody had that one. And that's how they, they sort of, they just bred them. They, you know, the average person might travel 10, 15 miles in his entire life. And he probably knew a couple hundred people. And so you know, these isolated geographically and sort of culturally, linguistically isolated peoples develop types uh, or, or land races of dogs that are similar just because they're similar really because there's no interchange or exchange or very little with other populations and so yeah i mean you know you hear about things like the Brittany spaniel coming from an old again as a breed it's new uh we're talking late 1800s early 1900s but as a as a type of a dog from the area of Brittany, Brittany is in western france sort of you know, with the Norman, just below Normandy, where the Normandy landings were in the Second World War, basically facing to the north of that is England, just across the English Channel. But in, in France, Brittany was kind of this um, out of the way, I don't know how it would be in, in the States, I'm not familiar with that much, but in Canada, it would be sort of like the Newfoundland of Canada. It's this, it's this place that's kind of outside of the mainstream. Uh, in fact, many people in Brittany didn't even speak French until 1900. They, they spoke their own sort of dialect and their own language. So it was an isolated type of a population. Their cows, their horses, the, the, the farming dogs that they had, including their and their pointing dogs that they had, and uh, tend to be smaller um, and really tough as nails. Even you look at the old historical accounts, they talk about the people of Brittany, probably because they were poor and had a poorer diet, tended to be small and tough as nails. And so you had these types of, and, and they were always called the poacher's dog. And you'll even see this in Brittany histories, you know, and it was the classic poacher's dog. And in my mind, I don't think that's accurate. I think that that poacher's dog, you know, name was put on them because people in Brittany were looked down upon. They were, they were, there was a prejudice against them. They were seen as, you know, as sort of backward farmers from this weird ass area and they're small and stuff. And so their dogs must be, you know, they, they just weren't, classy noble people or that's what people thought of them and so of course they you know quote unquote poachers dogs right so yeah and then but then the king you know i don't know in paris or the king you know in london had his you know packs of hounds and other ones that had their own special i mean you know you go back in some of the old literature and they talk about you know raising uh, these young boys uh, they went you know to become a head dog trainer or a head dog keeper you started as a young boy and one of the first things you did was you cleaned out the kennels, but you also slept there with some of those dogs just because you had to take care of them and, you know, and, and really sort of uh, coddle them as it were and train them and just work through the ranks until finally you're a, you're a man, an older man, and you're this really honored sort of dog trainer to the king. And, and so, yeah, I mean, certain types of dogs and certain breeds eventually 
have come to be associated with certain classes of, of people. Um, economically, I mean, these people in Brittany probably used the forerunners of the Brittany Spaniel. That dog would have been used for just about everything. They probably could afford to feed one dog. Now, that dog, if the guy happened to have a gun or probably a bow or a net, probably went out and helped him catch a few quail or some partridge for the supper table because he had hungry kids at home, right? But that dog, the next day, might have been helping him herd some cows. He might have been turning a spit. There was a type of dog called a turn spit. Basically, it was a wheel that turned a spit that ran above the fire to roast stuff and or a mill even for 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 um, um, for making fabric and for you know uh, spinning wool. They had dogs uh, running in wheels to do that. And so the dog might have fulfilled various functions. But the higher you got up in, in, in classes and in the nobility, the more specialized those dogs became. And so you would have this particular type of dog for this type of hunting and this type of dog for that type, hunting with hawks or, or in packs as, as hounds or later on pointers and setters. Um, and yeah, if you go in England and Ireland, England especially, in Scotland, that is the sort of the, the, the you know, sort of the peak of, of developing gun dog breeds by and for really, really rich dudes. Um, <laughs> to this day, a lot of people say pointers and setters don't retrieve, and they, they typically traditionally don't. It's not that they can't, they can be fantastic retrievers. I have a friend who's got awesome retrieving pointers, but traditionally, it wasn't their role. And Derry Argue in his book, he's an expert on pointers and setters, said, Well, you have to realize that in the 1880s, you're a super rich guy and you've got a whole staff breeding and taking care of your dogs, which, by the way, were prone to diseases and they were hard to feed. And some of them, they were basically expensive. Owning a pointing dog, a specialized pointing dog, training it, keeping it, caring for it was really expensive. He said, in the 1880s, they didn't retrieve because all they wanted them to do was run around, point the birds so we can shoot them. And one of your servants would go and fetch it because you paid your servant. Your servant, men were cheaper than dogs, is what he said at that time. So it, huh. so it really does, goes the whole spectrum from here's little, you know, Fido who hangs out and kills rats uh, in the barnyard. But tomorrow we're going to take him out and maybe shoot a duck and he'll fetch it out of the pond for us. All the way to these dogs that sold for what well, you know you could you could you know, sold for the equivalent of tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars huh do do you think that do we still see the impacts of the 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 cultural environment that created those breeds of dogs today or do you think that dogs are so malleable that um we've we've so quickly selected for uh, what we want at, for a modern hunter that there's no telling their origins based at, at, based on how versatile they are, how many roles they have the potential to fill. I guess in other words, do the dogs that kind of the dog breeds that rose out of aristocracy, do they still today tend to have that singular focus, uh, fill a single role and the dogs that rose out of agriculture and environments where they needed to serve a, a variety of purposes, um, they, is that still reflected in how the breed is represented today, or is it kind of all just scrambled up toward leisure hunting at this point? It depends where, frankly, it depends where, I mean, you know, you, I, I probably the vast majority nowadays are simply in the hands of individual breeders who, or and owners, you know, people who might breed a couple, three, four litters a year that do it on their own, or people like me who don't breed at all, but just get them from good breeders. You know, the days of super rich, wealthy guys, uh, you know, having massive breeding programs, and in fact, creating their own breeds. The Cortals Griffin was was created by a guy named Edward Cortals from Holland, but he created it while he was working for a prince in Germany, who had the world's biggest pointer and setter kennel. I mean, so if we could go back 150 years to the 1880s or something like that, you know, it would basically be like build. You know, instead of building rockets and going to space like these rich dudes are doing now, they they were competing with each other to win field trials and dog shows and become, you know, the world's best breeder of particular breeds of dogs. That's how, that's how it was back in that, that time for certain breeds. And um, especially pointers and setters, which really got their, their roots really are with the, with the landed nobility in England. Whereas in Germany and in France, France had a revolution, of course, they lost a lot of heads on the guillotine and they, you know, so they, 
whatever they had before the revolution kind of went back into the hands of the common man. Uh, in Germany, they didn't really have any of their hunting breeds until they reunified in 1848, and then even later in the 1870s when they kind of came together under Bismarck. Then they started breeding or developing national breeds. You see, that at that point, it wasn't even a question of, I'm a rich guy and I want to show my rich friends uh, how good my dogs are. At that point, it became, we are a growing nation that was poor, that we're becoming rich. In fact, we became one of the richest nations on earth and one of the most powerful. Uh, and so we need national breeds of dogs. That's where the German wire hair, German long hair, German short hair pointer, they come from this, this idea of not just, you know, one upping my neighbor on a personal basis, but one upping our neighbors on a national and international uh, uh, level. So it was, it was a really a nationalistic sort of uh, political sort of movement behind a lot of those breeds as well. Today, not so much, but I must say that I have seen it. So here's an example. You know, I just mentioned the Brittany, and I just thought of this. Now, in my book, uh, in each one of the chapters, I describe the breed and its history, and I also put a little personal anecdote of when I saw that breed and where. Now, I went to Brittany, and I've seen Brittany's in France, but I've seen them everywhere. They're, they're very common in many parts of the world, especially Canada and the U.S. Uh, France, obviously, it's the num number two breed in France. Um, and the anecdote I say is I was out in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan, and I was hunting chick, um, but they call chickens out there, uh, shark-tailed grouse, partridges, mm -hmm. and Hungarian partridges. And uh, my car broke down. Or my truck, I, I actually, it just stalled. I needed a boost or something. I couldn't remember. So basically, you're in the middle of nowhere in Saskatchewan. You, you're going to sit down and wait. Maybe a car or a truck will pass every hour or so. So sure enough, 45 minutes later, a little truck starts rumbling down the road. And sure enough, it's a farmer because everybody in Saskatchewan farms and everybody in Saskatchewan is friendly. And so, of course, he stops and offers to give me a hand. And what is on the seat beside him was a Brittany Spaniel. And it was probably the 50th Brittany that I saw in Saskatchewan that year. For some reason, Brittany Spaniels are, are particularly popular in this, you know, really hard scrabble, dry not particularly rich area of southern Saskatchewan just kind of like in Brittany <laughs> like Brittany's not dry it's a wet sort of you know place but similar sort of thing that these are hard-working blue-collar people that had them when we were in England my wife and I were in England in 2019 we went to a trial uh, for pointers and setters and they are rare as I mentioned they're very rare um, other breeds are much more common in England but the pointers and setters is a few um, but the people, they're, they're driving up in Land Rovers, man. These are people with, you know, with, they're not necessarily, you know, super rich people, but none of them are hurting, put it that way. And they are a very small, tight-knit group that know each other and breed extremely good dogs and have a really good time. They're wonderful. I just loved our time there. And, but they are sort of the inheritors of it. I think that if they all you put them all, or we all went in a time machine back a hundred years, you'd still meet the same people. It's just that they would live in, in castles and manors and have servants, you know. Nowadays, they just happen to live in really nice houses in London. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a bit of that. But no, I would say that in North America in particular, and in most places of Europe, it doesn't, again, it doesn't take a lot to own a dog nowadays. It's, it's not free, of course, and everybody is going to moan about their vet bills and, and this and that. But compared to what it was in the past, in the past, especially breeding dogs and, and caring for them with the level of veterinary care that they used to have, it, it, they were expensive beasts to have if their only purpose was pleasure. That's why a lot of them really had to have several jobs or they just had to have to be tough as nails. Hmm. Well, that's a great answer. I'm going to um, change gears on you here, Craig, and take care of a farm dog podcast ritual, which is to ask you, do you have a favorite farm dog or farm dog memory? I know you mentioned, I believe, is your uncle's dog, Dog, who just yep. got replaced periodically. He said you grew up around farm dogs and feel free. You know what? We'll just do this in two parts. We'll just talk farm dog to begin with, and then we'll talk hunting dog. So do you have a favorite farm dog or a farm dog story yeah actually i do um and it's not specifically a story but it's just sort of an observation here a lot of places that we hunt i live in manitoba which is for the american listeners just imagine i want you to imagine fargo and north dakota and imagine something north of north dakota because um, <laughs> that's where i am and so yes there is still you know civilization up here in land 
uh, and we don't live in igloos, but we are north of North Dakota, and um, it is in the southern area. There are certain areas of Manitoba which are very rich black soil. You know, think of you know grain fields to the horizon and, and really rich farming areas. And then there are other areas north of Winnipeg, um, around the lakes uh, north of the city, um, that are mainly ranching uh, country because the the land isn't good enough, I guess, for for growing crops. And so people fish on the lakes or they they ranch. And on those ranches, of course, we're talking real cowboys. I mean, people might think of cowboys, you know, associate them with Texas or, you know, southern United States. But up here, we're talking cowboy hats and chaps and, and cows and, 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 and cowboys running with dogs. And um, what I love, they, they typically have blue healers, um, Australian catalogs and blue healers and mixes of the two. The occasional a border collie we'll see or mixes. They're not afraid to mix them up again. They have their own sort of recipes of what's the best dog, and they will they'll breed to their neighbor's dog if it's a good one, and so you'll have generations of these dogs here, um, hard scrabble dogs that have been working. They work their butts off, and what I love up there is that all those dogs seem to know almost from puppyhood how to ride on a quad. So you'll see, you know, it, it is. It's kind of a weird thing, you know. Or sometimes you'll see them in the saddle because there's some of them are quite small, but. You'll see a farmer racing down the road with a quad and like literally three dogs on the back of that quad all hanging on uh, and just getting it, getting it done, you know. <laughs> um, and so actually there was an anecdote I had once I was watching them because during um, the roundup time I, I sit and I watch them because I love it. And uh, I saw one of my buddies, he's a rancher out there, and I saw him working. He had a new dog. And he was a young dog. The dog was a little one. And, and it, was, it was the last few cows that they had to get into this one chute or something. And uh one reluctant cow and his little dog the little young one tried and tried and tried and then i saw him getting frustrated and the farmer picks him up goes back puts him on the quad runs back goes gets another one and this is the old one this is the old dog and he brings him out there <laughs> and my goodness he took that dog off the back of that quad and that one cow that was reluctant to get in that thing just launched itself and bit it on the nose and that cow yeah it got into the chute after that so i learned that <laughs> that, that the old experienced ones they know how to deal with the old, you know, reticent cows with it. Uh, right, and then right. I, I can share one other one. So I stopped at a rancher's house once to ask for permission to hunt on his land. And uh, he had a border collie. And uh, I knock on the door and the border collie comes running up the step with a stick in its mouth. And it <laughs> dropped the stick at my feet. So, of course, I looked at the dog and it wagged its tail and I threw the stick for it. And it went and fetched the stick and two or three times kept fetching the stick and finally the door opens and it's the rancher and i said hi here you know i asked him this and that and he goes uh yeah he says uh, you're a quick learner and i said what he goes my dog trains every human it meets to play fetch <laughs> he says you learned on the first one but apparently that's all that dog does is that it just and, and i thought my god that dog trained me uh, he, like how did i know that that's what it wanted to do but apparently it did that to everybody that comes up that driveway it greets them with a stick and every human after a few times at least starts throwing the stick for it so the rancher literally <laughs> saw me and waited for me to play with his dog first so there you go so border <laughs> called the smartest dog in the universe i think <laughs> i think you might be right uh those are great great stories um hey tell me about uh whether we still have dogs that are multi-purpose farm dogs that among their many duties are expected to also hunt. Do we still have breeds that have that as a foundational characteristic here in North America? Um, we still have folks who need that one dog to herd and be a watchdog and protect the, the farmstead, but also hunt. And, and if so, what are they hunting? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure we do. I mean, although, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the sporting press and everything will always be, and of course it's, it's backed up by massive registration, registries like the AKC, et cetera, and these are all fine organizations, and same thing with all of the, the, the sporting press that talks about dogs, but it's very rare that you read about others, because, I mean, you'll, you'll get the impression that every hunter has a pointer or a setter or a GSP or a versatile dog or a lab or a springer. Right. Like, those are the only breeds, and it's true, the vast majority do, and 99.9% .9 of the coverage uh, you'll ever hear about hunting with a dog is of a purebred type of a dog. However, you know, it's, there's always been crossbred dogs. There's always been farm dogs. There, there, there's always been people hunting 
working with other, you know, quote unquote, other breeds of dogs or the, you know, non-standard, non-typical breeds of dogs. Uh, and in Hunting Dog Confidential magazine, we've had a couple of articles in there of people hunting. I mean, there's an article of a guy hunting with a, what does he call a, uh, a Chiorki a or something. It's, it's like a cross between a Chihuahua and a York. Yorkie or something like that and then there's another one where a young woman is hunting with a bull a, a, a pit bull uh, or an American bulldog of some sort so um, yeah uh, you know and people hunt with all kinds of dogs actually the first dog I ever hunted with was a German Shepherd that my uncle uh, owned and he would just come along when I was sitting in the duck blind and he would just sit beside me and eat bullfrogs if he caught one you know I mean he didn't <laughs> do much but he would just sit beside me his name was Hank and he would he would trot along beside me. I'd sit in a duck blind and I'd shoot a few ducks. And he didn't fetch me. He didn't do anything with me, but he was my companion. And so that still exists. It's just that it's never, you know, that nobody makes much of it. And nobody specifically breeds or trains or has any programs or advertises dogs like that. But it happens all the time. I and mean, people, people do this all the time. And it's a wonderful thing because we end up using the dog for, you know, things that, that, that give us pleasure as well as help us make a living and, and survive. And in the past, we can see certain examples. I mean, the one that comes to mind is there's a dog called a Drent Partridge Dog or Drent Partridge Hound. And it's a, uh, a brown and white long-haired dog. Looks kind of like an English setter, like a 4 by 4 version of an English setter from Holland, from the province of Drent. And one of its uh, main tasks, uh, as well as a couple of other hunting breeds from Holland, was to control moles um in holland it, 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 i think it might still be but it was a terrible problem with moles uh, digging up their field uh, fields and their gardens and so at one point in time i believe they tried a program i think it was even the queen or the princess of uh, holland at that time that's where moleskin comes from moleskin gloves and moleskin notebooks and things um, is that they, they, they opened a market for moles trying to get rid of them. And um, so they put a bounty or put a price on the skin of a mole or the hide of a mole. And um, yeah, and so it was that dog, part of its development was fueled by people breeding them to hunt moles. Um, and so, you know, and then we can go even further you know, or, or further ahead. Today, we've got dogs, not only bird dogs, but also other type of, of farming dogs that are used to detect other things. We just did, uh, we'll have an article in the next issue of Hunting Dog Confidential of a guy who now that pythons are a problem in Florida, they're, they're uh, training and using dogs to detect, to detect pythons so they can shoot them. And, and apparently the guy on his own without a dog would find one python an hour. And with a, with a dog, he was finding 10 in 15 minutes or something. It was crazy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this this sort of whole idea that you've got this dog with this, this number one, this talent to be trained and to do what you want it to do, the physical ability, because farm dogs are going to be physically fit beings. I mean, they, you know, they can't survive if they aren't. Um, and that is used to living close with humans and working interactively with them. My goodness, yeah. I mean, yeah, once the cows are home and everything's all put away, take that gun and take them out and go shoot a duck or, you know, find some partridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the, the dogs trained to find pythons, and I that's something I'd hope to explore here in Farm Dog in the future is some of these kind of peripheral peripheral uses of dogs, and, and in particular using a their nose and a hunting instinct to... Um, to search for various things, you know, to provide in some way or another for their owners. And uh, what I'm particularly interested in is uh, dogs, typically bird dog breeds, I think uh, Vislas and uh, a couple others that are being used to find invasive plants even in the midst of forests and prairies uh, so that they can find them and and uh, identify what threat they are and, and probably get rid of them. So that's a fascinating application. Um, well, not only invasive species, but also species that are quite hard to find. I mean, in Italy, of course, they have the truffle dogs. You know, sometimes they use pigs for finding right. truffles. But there is a, is a, there's a breed of dogs specifically born, raised, and trained to find truffles. And so who knows? Maybe at some point there are certain types of things that we might consider a weed on certain types of properties today that all of a sudden there's a market for it. You know, somebody finds a cure for something for baldness, let's say of some sort of, you know, <laughs> rare plant that might be on your land. Well, you could train your dog to find it for you. I know that 
they're using them now to find zebra mussels, which are an invasive species of mussels that sticks to the hull of boats. They have them now. Uh, I just did a podcast with a fellow who trains dogs for um, IED, explosive uh, uh, detection, as well as detecting um, uh, not only, like at airports, you know, the guy trying to bring in the, you know, forbidden baloney from, <laughs> from France or something. <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, they can do that, um, drugs and also explosives and other, you know, nasty things. They're training them to do that. So um, even even uh, cancer and COVID, apparently there are dogs. There was a study done in Finland where these dogs were like 99 percent accurate in terms of finding uh, COVID infections in people as well as uh, types of skin cancer. Unbelievable. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The, the flexibility and malleability of dogs and uh, the way we can use their talents is just fascinating. Say, I wonder if you might tell us, are, are there any any breeds of dogs that are kind of still, uh, even inside their package as a breed, are they still kind of marketed as multi-purpose dogs? Um, you know, I'm thinking of like, oh, maybe the Catahoula, or sometimes you, you hear it suggested that an Airedale is a really, you know, has the potential to be a hunting dog and a good farm dog and a good watch dog. Are there any breed names that we would recognize that are, are kind of still presented as being that all around farm dog that can also hunt? Oh yeah, sir. I mean, I would, first of all, I would look at things like the terriers. I mean, the Airedale is a very large terrier, but some of the smaller terriers, the Jack Russell's and the Fox uh, terriers and uh, Patterdale and other type of terriers for sure, because um, and, and again, you can go onto YouTube and you can find people doing um, uh, rat hunting um, with these dogs. I mean, it's incredible. There are certain areas, and I think they're in the states, in certain states, um, I'm thinking southern Midwest, someplace, um, where I think they store some of their fodder out in fields and it just gets infested with rats and they go through it with these dogs. And it's just an incredible um, hunt that they do, hunting these rats down. Um, uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, so I would uh, the first thing I would look at is some of the some of the, the, the terriers. And then, you know, there are other dogs that are coming in now um, from other places. Again, we almost never run out of new, quote, new, quote, old breeds of dogs. You know, the, the, the Karelian bear dog is, is an example of um, these type of dogs uh, related to a Laika, which is a Russian type of a dog, a treeing type of a dog. The Catahoula, these these sort of hounds and, and coon hounds and things like that, um, yeah. I mean, they were they were sort of you know in within the agricultural realm anyway. Um, and so to this day, I mean, yeah, I would look specifically at terriers would probably be the closest that would be still to this day that you know you got a farm you're going to want one of these guys because who knows what other than you know, just controlling the rat population, scaring off the raccoons and doing things for you. You could also go hunting with you. Um, yeah, feists, you know, there are feists and there are, uh, you know, squirrel dogs. There's new types of dogs being developed in the States called turkey dogs. They're sort of a cross, uh, cross section of various breeds. They're breeding into them to hunt turkeys with them. And some of them might have some farm dog. And then there's also these sort of you know, these old stories that uh, I think the Boykin Spaniel or some of these other breeds that, you know, when they trace back, yeah, it traces back to one dog and he was a farm dog and you bred to him and he happened to be a great dog. And then if we look at the human element, all of our modern dog breeding, this whole idea of selectively breeding a dog, we look at this dog, it has this quality, we look at this dog with that quality, we combine them, we're going to do this. This all goes back to the agricultural revolution that happened in England before the industrial revolution to a guy named Robert Bakewell who was one of the first persons to sort of say, well, look, I, wanna, I want cows that produce more milk. So here's the idea. I'm going to get my top producing bull and top producing cows, and I'm going to then measure the milk output of all their offspring and only breed to the ones that give the most milk. And I'm going to do that for 10 generations. And, um, and then eventually I'm going to get, you know, do or I'm going to get cows that produce more. So yeah, Robert Bakewell basically is the father of this whole idea of selective breeding. Uh, you want sheep with more meat or, or heavier goats that mature faster. You simply breed those that have those characteristics for generations. Now that concept was unknown up till that point. Hmm. And same thing with dogs. That's why dog breeds and even farm dog breeds were basically a mishmash and they weren't specifically um, or as highly and tightly sort of selectively bred until then. We're talking the mid 17, late 1700s. Um, so, yeah, 
you know, all of the selective breeding that we do with dogs today comes back from an agri has an agricultural background because that was the idea back then was this whole idea of breeding best to the best or the most suited for this to the most suited for that, that, that comes from the, the agricultural revolution. You mentioned uh, your mention of Bakewell reminded me of a book by uh, Patrick Burns, who is he oh, runs yeah, a, a, yeah, a really great website and blog uh, called Terrier Man, and I think that that's a, that the terriers might be a great topic for us to wrap up on. And um, what, one thing that occurs to me, especially after reading Patrick Burns's work, is that. Um, we think of terriers as when it comes to farm dogs and, and on the farm and on the ranch, we think of them as like pest control for, you know, like you mentioned rats and just other vermin around the place. But are we, are we kind of diminishing them by limiting that them to that role? I mean, if you talk to Patrick Burns, he'd probably tell you, yeah, that's not really what a terrier does. That's a nice side benefit of a terrier, but a terrier, a working terrier is a, is a diehard hunting dog. And um, I think even on your past podcast, I've learned that terriers have long been used to hunt even really big game. So what's, what's the role for terriers historically? And uh, are they serious hunting dogs? Oh, definitely. I mean, terrier comes from the French word terre, T-E-R-R-E, terre, which means earth. So they are earth dogs. And in fact, you know, the AKC, I believe, or some of these organizations have earth dog trials. Um, yeah, they're meant to go to ground, go to earth. And so uh, pest control, obviously. So when you have badges ripping up your field, which can break your horse's leg or snap an axle on your tractor, or you've got foxes raiding your hen house, or you've got otters and mink and, and weasels coming in and killing some of your pigeons or whatever you, whatever you have, well, that's the terrier's job and rats, obviously. Um, and they were among the first to be um, put in contests. A lot of our current uh, modern day field trials, you know, sort of the background in that, in that was things like ratting contests where, you know, a terrier would be put into a, into a pen with a bunch of rats and they were timed at how many they can kill at the same time. So this, this idea of competitive dog events sort of, you know, sprang up from them. And then they're, they're somewhat ubiquitous. I mean, there are many, many cultures in many places around the world that have terrier type breeds or dogs that do that sort of thing. And then in certain areas, well, you, you, you have them develop to, to, you know, not, they, they sort of grew out of their farming role, agricultural role and into a hunting role. The, the, I guess the classic example is a breed that's really starting to catch on here in North America. It's called the Yacht Terrier or, or uh, Hunt Terrier, Jag Terrier, I guess you would say in English. So it's J a G D terrier yacht, which means hunt in German. So yacht terrier is a uh, black and uh, tan wire haired little Tasmanian devil of a dog. I mean, the most driven, the most, Oh God, they're just a bundle of energy and they are used for hunting and they're used for tracking and they are incredibly strong dogs. Um, powerful dogs that need a powerful and strong handler, by the way, but they're catching on. They're catching on among hunters that, that use them for just about everything. And I've been in situations where I'm hunting pheasants and it's in such tight quarters that I'm thinking, you know what, it would be great. A little Jack Russell or a Yak Terrier in this thing, they would just churn that little cattail stand up and flush those birds out. It would be unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the Terriers, wherever they have been in use, you can also see them being used for hunting uh, and hunting. So, yeah, I mean, obviously they're predator controls. They're keeping the fox out of your uh, out of your chicken coop. But also when you're organizing a hunt with a bunch of your buddies and you're going hunting with the hounds and the pack of hounds, well, you're also carrying a bunch of terriers with you because if that fox goes to earth, what are you going to do? You're going to put a terrier down there and it's going to force that fox out. So, yeah, I mean, there's a strong link. And, and that's why I mentioned when you say, you know, which ones are still that way? I would say that the, the terriers. But historically, there's also a good um, connection with collies. Or I, I, I always say border collie, I guess. Collie is the right word. But so do you know what a Gordon setter is? The yes. Black and tan, beautiful black and tan. Well, yeah. there, is, there is pretty solid evidence that um, part of his heritage goes back to the Duke of Gordon, who for which the breed is named. He wasn't the originator or the first breeder of it, but they named it after him because he bred them. And there's pretty solid evidence pointing to a good probability that he bred to a collie, um, a black and tan Scottish collie. 
really? um, that uh, had a local reputation of being a brilliant bird dog. Um, <laughs> it was apparently owned by a young shepherd, and everybody knew of that dog, and everybody realized that this dog pointed like, uh, like you know, till the cows would come home, and it had a good nose on it, and it was smart and trainable. And apparently, the duke or somebody associated with him bred to that dog, and so to this day, in the the, the Gordon Setter world, um, there are those that believe that collies played a role. There are those that don't. But from all the evidence that I've seen, and I've been researching this for a long time now, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that it probably did happen, and probably more than once. In fact, it probably happened in other uh, breeds of, of pointing dogs as well, in that, that, that whole stalking and that, that cooperative, that far-reaching range, that galloping, yeah, there, there's, there's got to be some, some crossover in there for sure. Well, Craig, now you have me wanting to go out and find a Gordon Center to, uh, to herd my goats and sheep and point some quail and pheasants here in Iowa. So, or, or do I mean, the other way around. Find yourself a black and tan collie. You know, there I mean? you go. Yeah, look, look at it because I, I think that, you know, okay, what would be easier, training a setter to herd or training a collie? to hunt i think training a collie to hunt would be easier (laughs) you're probably right so because they're smarter i'm gonna add that to email i'm gonna add that to item number 442 of the things i'd like to do someday um hey craig this has been a fascinating conversation i love it it's been great and i would like to give you a chance here just on the way out the door to tell folks where they can find you which of your many uh ventures you'd like to point them to to explore more about you know we may be reaching some people today who never thought about uh hunting or hunting dogs and uh i think you would be a great introduction for them to uh the world of of hunting dogs which is absolutely fascinating an absolutely fascinating place so where can they find you well, yeah, I mean, the, the best place is triple W, obviously, on the internet. Go to dog willing, D O G willing. So it's a play on the words of God willing, dog willing dot CA. I'm in Canada, so it's not dot com. I use a dot CA. So that's dog willing dot CA. Um, and that, you know, sort of is your portal that'll take you to all of the various things that I do, including, you know, Instagram and Facebook, all social media, as well as Project Upland, uh, Hunting Dog Confidential. A lot of my photographs, I have a blog videos the whole the whole nine yards and for anybody who is you know in the agricultural areas a farmer a rancher that's thinking about hunting you know i suggest that they think about it in a way that's becoming more and more common in that you're already close to your food source in other words you are the ones that provide food for the world and you are close to it um growing up again as i said in a farming family I don't think my parents ever bought a bag of potatoes until, you know, I was 30 years old. I mean, they came from the farm. We basically had all our fruit and vegetables and much of our fish and meat came from the farm of relatives who were still farming at that time. So we were always close to food. And that's what hunting is to me. That's what brought my wife into hunting. That's what's bringing more and more people every day into hunting is this whole idea of sourcing food close to home sourcing food that you know the origins of hey in canada it's illegal i believe it's illegal in the states to to sell game so i tell people the game i eat is free range it's free of hormones free of chemicals and it's literally free because we can't sell it you have to give it away so my neighbors enjoy some of the geese that we take my neighbors will enjoy some of the deer that we take and i give it to them because that's what we do we share the harvest with them so i think that that's a good way to think about it, instead of thinking about the gun angle, which is a thing you need to think about, you, need, you know, we use firearms and, you know, there's got to be the safety and the legal aspects of what you can hunt at what time of year and how many you can take, all that. But really, if you base your whole, you know, sort of introduction or your, your, your sort of um, understanding of hunting on this idea of getting close to your food source and, and the nature, the natural world that's around you uh, and using your dog as your sort of connection, as your conduit to this natural world, I can think of nothing better at all in this world than to be out there with your dog, enjoying nature and, and its bounty. It's an excellent point. And as farmers and ranchers and homesteaders that value producing wholesome food 
in partnership with our dogs. Uh, hunting with a dog is just the next logical step. So I encourage you to get out there and check out Craig's work. Craig, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Aaron, for inviting me. This is a, a great opportunity for me to think about all these related topics. I, I never really gave it much thought before, but it really is a fascinating uh, subject. Thanks, Craig. It's been a lot of fun. Take care, okay? Thank you. Thanks for listening to Farm Dog. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please subscribe, leave us a positive review, and tell someone about it. Thanks. Thanks.